Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 192 of the Intercooler Podcast. With me, Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel, my co-host. Uh, this is the first episode of the new year of 2024. So we use this as an opportunity to look back a little bit, um, but we also talk about our long-term test cars. We've both got interesting long-termers at the moment that we haven't really mentioned on the podcast before. Um, so enjoy this episode. And thank you ever so much for listening to the podcast throughout 2023. Thank you for your support. Um, thank you for getting stuck in, getting involved, um, letting us know what you think. It's been a real pleasure to do this for you. And we're going to keep doing it throughout 2024. And we'd like to really mix things up actually in the new year and bring in more guests, um, do more live podcast recordings. So we really do plan to take the podcast to the next level uh, this year. And we just hope that you stay with us and keep listening. So thank you again. And I hope you enjoy this episode. This is the first episode of 2024, Andrew. So happy new year to you. Happy new year to everybody listening. Um, and it doesn't matter that we're actually recording this on the 22nd of December. Yes, um, yes, um, yes, it's, it's, yes, it's, a, it's the last podcast of the year for us and the first podcast of the year for everybody else. Indeed, it is. Um, yes, we, I think this is a good opportunity, isn't it, to, well, you look back at this time of year and you look forward. Um, so we're going to do that. We're going to just sort of look back at 2023 a little bit, because actually for us in particular, for the intercooler, it was a heck of a year. Um, but let's also look forward the cars that we're, uh, most looking forward to driving the new cars. Um, but we, I also want in this episode to talk about our long-termers because we, we're both currently knocking about in a couple of very interesting long-term test cars that we haven't actually discussed on the podcast yet. Before we get stuck into any of that, Let's just think a little bit about 2023. Um, we're not going to bang on about us for too long, but it's. I think 2023 was the year that we figured out exactly what type of story, what type of article we want to put our weight behind in 2024, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, we've done we've done some stuff which has been really, really well received, which is always gratifying. Um, particularly those those triple tests we did. We did the three nine elevens, and then we did the three very exclusive um, limited edition flagship Ferraris and then three BMW estate cars. Um, and, you know, we, we know from the response to yeah. all of those that, um, you know, you love seeing that sort of thing, um, both on the website and the app and on video as well. So we'll be doing a lot more of that sort of stuff in uh, this year. We did our first live recorded podcast uh, at Henry's Car Barn, uh, which went down, well, 
and we know because people are kind enough to say so. Um, that was fantastically well received, so we'll be doing some more of that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, it's, it's been a year of learning for us, hasn't it? Um, as, as, as I guess is always the way with, with new startups, particularly, as in our case, when you're stupid enough to try and do something that's never been done before. Um, there's no, there's, there aren't anybody else's mistakes from which to learn from, are there? You've just got to kind of go out there, and make them yourself, and um, and learn from that directly. But there's no better way of learning from it um, because you know it's the sort of thing that you don't forget. So it's it's been a it's been a hard year, hasn't it? It's been a tough year um, in terms of just the. Not that I'm asking anyone to feel sorry for us. I think you know we have a pretty nice time most of the time. But it's um, it's been a lot of work. But goodness me, it's been worth it. Has it ever? Yeah, <clears throat> it has been. You're right. It has been tough at times, but absolutely worth it. And we're we're only going to pedal harder in 2024. And actually, um, if you subscribe to the Apple website, you probably know this already. But we are making a big upgrade to our app in the coming months. Um, big, big investment for us. It'll just make the user experience an awful lot better. Um, we're not going to go into detail about it now. That's for later on. But um, that, that's going to be taking up quite a lot of our energy over the coming weeks, um, is getting our new custom-built app ready. So that is exciting for us. That's really exciting. Sorry, I was just going to say, we're not going to go into great details, but one of the things which you will never see is that it's going to make our life a lot less time-consuming on the sort of nitty-gritty, fiddly backstage stuff you never see, which means it'll simply free up much more time for us to get out there and create the kind of content that you do see, which is good news for you and it's particularly good news for us. Yeah, indeed. It's, it's going to be really good. It's going to be really good. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, we haven't spoken about your long term. I think we've probably mentioned mine, but we haven't spoken about yours at all. <laughs> that is a hell of a car to be knocking about in for a few months, isn't it? Do you want to tell us what it is? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a McLaren Artura. Um, I first had a conversation with them about it at the Festival of Speed, which would have been back in... In July, uh, it shows you how long it takes for these things to, um, to sort of come to fruition. I just think it, I mean, obviously, no one's going to feel sorry for me knocking about in a McLaren, but it is, for that company, it is such an important car. It is mm. the car on which their future is essentially based, um, because everything on it, that brand new engine, that brand new platform with the brand new carbon tub made not by somebody else somewhere else, but at their own facility in Sheffield. I mean, everything that certainly for the next I don't know, another dozen years, because it's been a dozen years since McLaren Automotive came into being, um, is going to be certainly all the sports cars. I mean, there's obviously talk of an SUV and that sort of thing um, are going to be spun off that. So it is a crucial car for them to get right. Um, as we know, and we're not going to go into it in detail because everybody else has done ad nauseum. You know, its launch was not ideal. Um, there were problems with the pre-production units they used there. Um, so again, you know, that's really, really interesting. Is it going to hold together? Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to use it pretty much my daily driver for the next however long it is. Um, it's a <laughs> yet to be uh, finally agreed number of months. Um, but it's, it's going to be absolutely fascinating. I've been knocking about in it a bit recently. Um, they were kind enough to deliver it on Pirelli winter tyres, the Soto Zero, uh, which are absolutely unbelievable. I mean, just I had a 750S in just before, um, which was on P0s on summer tyres, and that would spin its wheels on a dry road in fifth gear. This thing just dumps it all onto the ground. Um, it's, you know, and it's not a lot less powerful. It's probably got, I haven't looked it up, but it's probably got, it's certainly got much more low down torque. And yet on those Pirellis, it just, you could just use the car. And it just gives you so much confidence. But anyway, so it's, I love the fact that I can just get into it at some stupid hour in the morning and just crawl off the drive and pass the neighbours' houses and out the village and not disturb anybody. I love the fact that if you're just sort of driving along and you get to a village, you can just knock it into electric and you just sort of waft through. And for some reason, we don't really understand. It doesn't attract... I had a, well, a ridiculously coloured 296 GTB in recently, which some of you may remember from the story I wrote about it. But... I mean, you just got mobbed in that all the time. It doesn't happen in the McLaren, really. People don't pay it. I mean, I think it's a dramatic looking thing, but people don't see, and it's in, you know, it's orange, although it's the darkest, they call it ember orange. It's the darkest of the four oranges that they do. Um, but people, it doesn't get that reaction. And I think some people might think, oh, that's a bit disappointing because you want a car like that to really suck up the stairs from the pavement. From the pavement. I don't. I love it. I love the fact that you... 
I'm Achilles, it's not I'm unobtrusive, but I love the fact that it's it's not a sort of look at me kind of car. Um, and I don't feel self-conscious about being in it, um, which is very important to me. I can remember when I had an i8 years ago, back in, I don't know, like 2016, something like that, and no one left you alone. Um, you know, they were, you know, you'd be on the motorway and then you know, idiots would be right up behind you with their, you know, their, with their telephones, cameras, and then they'd be beside you and then they'd be in front of you. Then they'd put the brakes on to get a bit closer. And I just felt, <clears throat> I got a bit paranoid. I just felt like I was being hunted. And then I got out of that into a 911 and I just disappeared. I just completely disappeared. No one paid me any attention at all. Um, so, it, yeah, it's, um, what is it? So it's 680 horsepower. Um, it's got the, the hybrid drive. It should do about 18, 19 miles on electric power alone. Um, it's got this incredibly sophisticated new electronic system in it. Um, which McLaren and McLaren have never used before. I think very few manufacturers even you. I don't really understand how it works, but I will get into it. But basically, that's going to future-proof uh, the electronic hardware of McLarens for you know years and years and years to come. So they basically took a big, deep breath when they made this car and said, OK, fine, we're just going to do everything new, and then that might be a bit tough to begin with, but at least then we'll have it all and we'll be able to use it for goodness knows how long in the future. The only thing I don't really understand, why did they make it look so much like all the McLarens from the past? It's strange, isn't it, that you create a car that is that new. It's a good looking thing, but... It's a great looking thing. I love it. I think it's fantastic. But I just don't understand why you would go to that effort to go, right, this is a complete, it is a new car from stem to stern. Everything about it, engine, gearbox, suspension, platform, the lot is new. And you think, well, we'll just make it look quite a lot like all the ones which aren't new anymore. Don't understand it. Anyway, um, it's here and I love it um, so far. I haven't done a huge amount in it. I certainly will do. Um, yeah, I'm taking it across the other side of the country um, next week to visit some family. And it'll be it'll be really, really interesting. So, yeah. Artura, which apparently is a, is, is a, I think it's, I think it's one of those compound verbs of art and future. Okay, it doesn't mean Arthur then. Um, so we, it, it's tempting to compare the Artura to the 296 GTB because they're both mid-engine supercars. Ferrari, McLaren, we love that rivalry. Um, they both have hybrid drive, twin-turbo V6 engines. It, but it's a slightly offset comparison, isn't it? Because really the 296 GTB is in the same price bracket as the 750S. But nevertheless, it's it's they, there are similarities there. Um, I drove the 296 GTB um, when we when you had one. I drove it fairly briefly, but enough to get a feel for it. I was just astonished at how good the integration of the hybrid drive was. It I wasn't really aware of it and the engine sort of working separately. They just seemed like a single component. Um, it was astonishing. So I just wonder if you can offer some thoughts on how the hybrid system in the Ferrari compares to that in the McLaren? Um, yeah, I can. Um, the McLaren one is a bit different. I mean, first of all, I think the first thing to say is I, I do rail a bit about against, you know, the amount of journalists who come up to me when they've heard that I've got this car and they go, oh yeah, fine, that's not as good as a 296 GTB, is it? And I just want to go for, oh, yeah, come on. Mm. You know, 296 is however many, many, many tens of thousands of pounds more expensive. In terms of power-to-weight ratio, it is an almost identical match for a 750S. In terms of price, it's an almost identical match. And just because, yes, both happen to have 120-degree V6 twin-turbo V8 hybrid engines in it, people think, oh, they're the same car. They're not. Anyway, sorry. I should get off my hobby horse now. Um, <clears throat> I think you're more aware of the hybrid system in the McLaren because, I mean, it does stuff like when the, you're using the hybrid and the engine fires up, it still briefly doesn't drive the car because it goes through a very fast sort of cat warning phase. So you can hear the engine, but you're not driving. But it's not driving the car. Um, so that's I don't I don't know whether that's good or bad. It's just a, it's just a bit different. I think the integration once you've actually got it is at least as good. Certainly when you sort of put your foot down and you want that um, instant sort of torque filler. I know McLarens have really been criticised in the past for you know good old fashioned turbo lag. Um, needing quite a few revs before you get to maximum torque, there being a bit of delay between you putting your foot on the throttle and something happening. Well, that's all gone. I think this car develops peak torque about two and a half thousand revs. And because of the infill that the hybrid is able to produce, um, there is no delay. So um, 
I would say that it works, yeah, pretty much as well. I think, I don't know which has got a longer all-electric range, but they'll be similar. They will be similar. Um, so, yeah, I think without having the two of them back-to-back, -back, it would be difficult to say. Um, but there's certainly nothing about the hybrid system and the McLaren. The only slightly strange thing is that under certain conditions, if you are, let's say you're down to 1% battery or one mile range remaining and you get to a village, you know, think, well, I've still got a mile, so I'll use that. It won't give it to you. It's almost like it thinks, oh, no, I don't want to run out, which I know is rubbish because it's always, the thing is it's always got some in it because it needs to be able to go backwards. It doesn't have a reverse gear. Like the Ferrari, the car goes backwards by spinning the electric motor in the opposite direction. Um, so however depleted the battery may be, it isn't because it still... Ha I can't remember how, said they, how far they said it would reverse um, with zero range on the battery. I did ask them this question. after idiot that I am. I've forgotten what the answer is. I said, well, okay, so you've got nothing in the battery and you put it to reverse. How far will you be able to go backwards? It wasn't quite a lap of the Nürburgring, but it was a very long way. Uh, further than you'd ever, ever choose to reverse a car. So you're not going to run out. So, um, yeah, it's... I think it's... And if you think of the you know, the resources that they would have had. And <coughs> I mean, clearly they've never, they've, they've, they've done hybrids before. The P1 was a hybrid, the Speedtail was a hybrid, but this is, this is very different because this is a car that's going to be made not in the hundreds, but in the, in the many thousands. Um, and obviously, you know, allied to a completely new electronic system, um, tied to a completely new engine and a completely new car. It's, it's, I just, you remember when Aston Martin decided they're going to do an SUV, and instead of just going to Mercedes and going, can we reskin an ML or something, they decided to do their own platform, and then just because that wasn't difficult enough, they decided to build it in a brand new factory. Um, and and the, the ambition of these small British sports car companies when it comes to sort of breaking new back, I mean, sometimes it does, you do worry that it kind of outstrips their ability to actually deliver it, um, but... I mean, the DBX works um, for them, and you don't hear problems. You don't hear people go, "Oh, you know, you don't want to buy a DBX because the wheels all fall off." Um, and so far, you know, it's early days, but this this Arturo, which is absolutely no excuses production spec, it's been good as gold. So let's hope, hope it stays that way. So I, it's interesting hearing you talk about the hybrid system, and particularly sneaking through a village early in the morning without the engine running on electric only. I totally get that. I've mentioned this before, but I had an Audi R8 Spider for six months, a few years ago. Big V10 engine, no hybrid drive. Um, and sometimes, just occasionally, I'd park it out on the street in a residential area. And I would have to get in it really early um, to get to wherever, wherever I was going. And I'd fire it up. I don't know, might be 5.30 in the morning, might be 6am, something like that. And it would start with this big burst of revs. And then it would idle it. I don't know, probably 1,500 RPM, RPM, maybe a bit more, to warm the cats as quickly as it could. But it just made a racket, a racket. And I was so embarrassed. Um, and actually, someone, I know I, all everyone who lived around that residential area hated me, and someone put a brick through the window once. No. Um, and so I, I became very, very self-conscious about that. It's, they didn't damage the car at all, apart from, apart from that bit of glass. Um, so clearly, I was upsetting a lot of people around there and actually i can understand why it would wake you up um so it was it was embarrassing actually so the idea of being able to at least sneak through a village get away from where you live get away from where people are sleeping and then fire the engine is fantastic but i just wonder if you think that this new generation of supercar the 296 the artura um are they better overall are they better for having smaller engines and hybrid drive oh that's such a good question it's amazing how the technology has developed one of the i think little appreciated facts about mclaren's first hybrid the p1 was one of the design parameters of it it was that it couldn't take away performance so the additional power that it provided had to at least offset the additional weight that it brought and it did that almost exactly the hybrid system on the P1 didn't make the car any faster over a lap. It, the extra power just cancelled out the additional weight. Um, now they are past that. Um, if you took the hybrid system off the Artura, the car would slow down, as well as being much less responsive and difficult to drive and, and everything else. So I think you know, it also does, 
I don't know. Because it's got a 3-litre V6 in it rather than a 4-litre V8, like, you know, a 720S, it does 30, 32 to the gallon, if you're not being silly in it, as opposed to, whatever it would be, 24, 25. Um, and if you're rich enough to own a car like that, maybe you don't care about the money, but the additional range is nice. Um, I like, I prefer the sound of the V6 over the V8. The Arturo doesn't sound as good as a 296, but, um, you know, both cars, to me, sound better than their than the V8 engines that they they replaced. Yeah, I mean, I can't really think. And, and also, the astonishing thing about the Artura is they've managed to keep the weight down. I mean, it, it is lighter with the hybrid than those traditional cars, like an F8 or a Huracan that you'd think of, are, which would rival it. Um, it is lighter than they are, and they don't have hybrids. So they've managed to keep the weight of the hybrid package so low that effectively... It makes you wonder how light it would be without the hybrid, but there appears to be no weight penalty cost. It's still a sub-1500 kilo car um, with all that gubbins on it, which I think is, you know, I think is absolutely remarkable. Well, I mean, it's hundreds, I mean, again, I, I, I shy away from the comparison, but it is hundreds of kilograms lighter than the Ferrari. Yeah. Pah. Impressive. Um, uh, do you know, I, I haven't driven an Artura, um, but now that you've got one outside, I'm clearly going to have to come and have a go at some point. Um, and see what this new this new generation of McLaren is all about. Um, so that's yours. Well, let me tell you about my long termer, um, BMW M2. Uh, do you know? Curiously, this is the first time I've ever had a long termer that I'd never driven before. Um, it's a strange thing to have your new car turn up on the driveway. It's yours for six months, uh, but you've You've never even sat in one. Um, so I literally didn't know what to expect. Um, and I took it out. The day it arrived, I took it out for a drive on some of my local roads, which are good roads, but they're sort of compromised, fairly traditional, you know, tricky, bumpy, tight British B roads. Um, and in the first instance, I, I didn't really understand what it was all about, what the what kind of car the M2 was. I, I really liked the previous one, the M2 competition at least. Um, but this one, it, it felt bigger, and it is. It's based on the three and four series platform, not the one series platform like the previous M2. Um, so it is bigger. It's actually quite heavy. It's at least 1,700 kilograms. Um, I'd like to go and weigh this one actually and, and see what it actually is in, in reality. It's over 200 kilograms heavier than the Artura. That is amazing, isn't it? It is really for a little. You know, for what's meant to be the little. <laughs> how much heavier is it than a? <coughs> excuse me, a previous M2 comp. It's something like 150 kilograms, something like that. Might be a little bit more, might be a little bit less, but it's a very significant amount. And actually, what if you look at if you look at all recent BMW M cars, they're all quite porky. An, an M3, an M4, you know, an M3 X Drive. Touring is at least 1,900 kilograms. It's a heavy car. The last M5 was a chunky car. Um, and it's quite clear that M have decided that weight is no longer the enemy the way that it once was. Um, They're wrong. They, they used to go to extraordinary lengths to, yeah, yeah. They used to go to great lengths to keep weight down. I remember on the launch of the previous M4, so the first turbocharged one, they had this huge table or row of tables. Um, with all the lightweight components lined up along it. Um, the point being, they had put a load of work into reducing the weight of the M4 um, and the M3. And it, it was a real focus for that project. But we didn't get any of that stuff. They, you know, they didn't tell us about the, the lengths they'd gone to to keep the weight down on the most recent M3 and M4. And they're a lot heavier. Um, what's interesting, though, is that They've clearly become very, very good at, at managing weight, particularly with suspension. So they don't feel as heavy as they are, but weight is always there. No matter how clever you are at disguising it, weight is always there. And it might only be when you are really hustling the car or you find yourself in a spot of bother or something that you become suddenly aware of the weight. Um, but it's always there. And so... I do feel that when I'm driving the most recent M cars. They're so clever in how they disguise that weight, but it's there. 
Um, and so my first drive in this M2, I sort of, it took me a while to figure out what it was all about. And I, even a couple of weeks in, I still wasn't sure quite what this car was about, who it was for. for to me, it didn't seem like it was as fun, as engaging as the previous M2. Um, and so I made a point of getting out onto some great roads in the hills in South Wales, roads I know really well. Um, I just where there's a bit more space, where the corners flow, you know, you can get into a bit of a rhythm with a car. Um, and I realized that when you really get up it, when you really hustle it hard, when you drive it with some sort of commitment, then you find the thug in the in it. You know, you find the hot rod in it. You find the fun in the M2, and it is a really exciting. Uh, energetic, lively car to drive. I really enjoyed it, actually. Um, you do need space to do that, but if you give it that space, you'll have a great deal of fun. Actually, what I've realized now, I'm almost halfway through my loan with this car, I think. I've had it three months, so the time's flying by. Um, but what I've realized is that it is masterful, masterful at the everyday stuff. Um, now, it's worth sort of just stepping back a little bit here and thinking about the four-seat coupe marketplace. This is a £66,000 car. If you want the manual gearbox, which mine has got, it actually costs you more, about £67,000. Um, but what else is there in that price bracket? I mean, it's sort of natural, I suppose, to compare it to something like a 718 Cayman, maybe an A110, maybe a Supra. Um, but they're all two-seat cars. And now I've I've got a little one at home. Um, we've got a we've got a daughter. Those cars are no good for me. That's that's why I had to sell my Alpine. Those cars are no good for me anymore. Even if you had something like a 911 and spent a lot more money, I mean, would your mm. would your daughter go in the back of a 911? I mean, she might behind her mother, but not behind you. No, the the baby seat I don't think will fit. Particularly at the moment, it's a rear facing baby seat. Well. She'll spin through 180 degrees soon and be forward facing. But while she's rear facing, you need a lot of space. So I don't think you'd get the, the passenger seat back in a 911. So it's, it's, it's even more practical for my use case, for my purposes, than a 911. So actually, there, there's almost nothing else out there. And maybe you're looking at an M4, an in-house rival, a much bigger car. Um, perhaps a Mustang or something. Um, but really, you're so limited in that space these days if you need a little bit more practicality. So never mind the fact that it's basically the only car of its type that works for me at the moment. It works brilliantly. The ride is really good. It doesn't rattle you to pieces. Um, it's got a fantastic cabin. The tech is superb. The seats are really comfy. It doesn't have the silly seats, which is a blessing. It's a godsend. Um, so... The seats are really comfortable. Um, yeah, those very bony carbon BMW M seats, are, I, I, they're okay. I, they are probably not great for a long journey. But with a manual gearbox, that lump in the middle just becomes super uncomfortable. So mine, I don't have those seats, thank goodness. Um, so the point about the M2 is particularly for me and the way I use it, and I do need a certain degree of practicality now, it's just, it's superb at the everyday stuff. And then when you stretch its legs and work it hard, it becomes really good fun to drive. Um, so I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying it at the moment. I, I don't particularly love the way it looks. Um, mine's in Zandvoort blue, that baby blue. It's a, it's a distinctive color. I think it's growing on me, but I, it's probably not what I would choose. Um, so the way it looks is a bit of an issue for me, but otherwise, I think the M2 is is fantastic. Maybe we need to get our long-termers together at some point, have a swap and um, see what we each think of them. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. So, should we look ahead to 2024 a little bit? The cars that we're looking forward to driving, um, it's, do you know what? It actually does look like there's some interesting stuff coming next year. Um, on this sort of supercar level, also on the little interesting city runaround, um, EVs in particular, there is some interesting stuff coming. Um, so maybe you can kick us off with the car or cars that you're most looking forward to driving in 2024. Well, talk about um sort of smaller ev type cars um okay there's, there's one i'm really interested in um and one i'm really looking forward to so the one i'm interested in is the alfa romeo milano which is alfa romeo's first ever full ev it's going to be their smallest of the sort of crossover suvs it's a sort of baby brother to <coughs> a stelvio um but it's based on the same platform used by the Jeep Avenger, which is not a car we often talk about on this podcast. Um, but actually, I've driven it. And it's really, really good. In fact, so I said on a thing called the Car of the Year jury. Uh, and we voted it Car of the Year last year. Um, because of all those small EVs. I mean, the Fiat 500 EV is pretty good, actually. Um, but the Avenger is really, really good. It, it is a car that puts a smile on your face. And what, and what I'm kind of hoping is that Alfa Romeo, for once, will take something like that and sprinkle a little stardust on it. Give it a bit of Alfa Romeo magic. I mean, there have been so many Alphas. I mean, I cannot count the number of Alphas, which you look at and you think, wow, that's going to be amazing. That look, and you get it and you think, oh, really? Oh, all right, uh, move on. Um, and I just, I just so hope that this one, and I know it's a small crossover EV, and so your expectations aren't high, but... Within its category, within that, the genre of that type of car, there is so much scope to do something a bit different, a bit, something less obvious, something with just a bit of sparkle to it. And I just really, really hope, given how good I know the raw material is, that they are able to do something Alfa Romeo with it. Um, the one I'm really looking forward to, though, because I've just got, I've, I've just got a feeling about this car, is the Renault 5. It looks, I mean, if you, want to, if you want to know how to go and do retro, go and have a look at the new Renault 5. I mean, it's, it is shamelessly retro, and yet it looks so cool, so funky. And there, there is something sort of strange, in its stance, there's something sort of strangely modern about it. Um, and Renault's boss, Luca De Meo, who is a very impressive chap who doesn't tend to say things without meaning them, says that his aim for that car is that it's going to be the most fun small car you can buy. <coughs> um, and, you know, I'd back him to deliver on it. And, you know, as we know, there's going to be an Alpine version of that, um, which will hopefully be more fun still. And, yeah, I'm just really, I'm excited about it. Who do, I mean, I'm excited about a small, you know, compact EV in a way that three, four years ago, I'd never have thought that I could be. But I think that there is a, I mean, okay, fine. Let's get this into perspective. I used to own, um, gosh, a very long time ago, a Renault 5 GT Turbo, um, which was an absolutely amazing little roller skate of a car. It's not going to be that, not even the Alpine version. It's going to be heavy. It's going to be electric. It's not going to sound great. Um, you know, there will be all sorts of problems which are inherent within the kind of car that it is. But, you know, we cannot spend our lives looking mournfully over our shoulders going things ain't what they used to be you know we have to just accept that the world is the way that it is and judge cars for the way they perform in that world and i think that in the world that we find ourselves today i'm really excited about it so fingers crossed yeah i'm looking forward to driving the Renault 5 as you say it looks fantastic um i think it could be a fun little thing uh, but we'll have to wait and see won't we so <clears throat> let me sort of switch it up a little bit from the little Renault 5 electric city car lamborghini revuelto now, I know um, people have driven it on the launch already, 
Um, but hopefully, hopefully, I'll get to drive one for the first time in 2024. Um, the successor to the Aventador, um, this was a plug-in hybrid with a thousand brake horsepower. <laughs> a thousand brake horsepower. Um, I, this is odd to me because I, I haven't tended to love V12 Lambos, or certainly of the modern ones. I've actually only driven Aventadors, but basically every version. Um, and I've rarely loved the Aventador, although I thought the SVJ, the sort of run-out special edition one, the wild one, was absolutely superb. I thought it was so exciting. Um, so I'm curious to see if modern tech, if it has got a dual-clutch gearbox, I think, isn't it, which was an issue with the last one. Really curious to see if a, a sort of much more modern approach makes Lamborghini's big V12 car a more rewarding, more exciting drive. Um, so often I've driven the Ventadors, particularly on UK roads, and just felt them frustrating. Um, now, this is clearly bigger, more powerful, heavier, I'm sure. Um, but maybe they've been able to overcome those things and make it a more intuitive, more enjoyable car to drive. I don't know. We'll find out. The problem with those Lamborghinis has always been accessibility. Um, you have to feel confident in those cars or there's no point in driving them. And there are environments in which you can do that, um, but they are few and far between. Now, maybe they are the sorts of environments that owners of those sorts of cars spend their lives hanging out in. Well, fair enough. But if you're on British A and B roads, because they're so wide, because they're so hard to see out of, um, and because of their natures, they are the kind of cars that unless you're driving them really fast, you kind of wonder, well, why am I in this car? Other than because I like the looks that it gets. Um, something like the Artura, I'm not really banging about it, but you, know, you can enjoy that anywhere because it's so easy to see out of, because the steering feels so lovely, because it's such an easy car to operate. There is no sort of hurdle that makes you jump before you can get to the good stuff. And that's what I hope with this car. I hope that you know, actually, it just gets some of the basics right. I hope I can see out of it. I hope it doesn't feel huge around me because that's just going to stop me enjoying it. Um, as, as happened with... I completely agree with you about the SVJ. I thought it was so far and away the best of the Aventadors. I mean, the first Aventador I drove, I thought, was really pretty terrible. Um, <clears throat> but even that still required... Um, it still required you to be in absolutely the right mood and on the right road and in the right conditions and then you could let it go and then it was and they always were they were amazing um, but goodness what an effort it, was, it, it required of you before you could get to see that side of its character I want to talk about a car or cars that we're not going to see in 2024 but there's a specific reason for me talking about them in the context of 2024 because 2024 is the year we are going to find out just what the hell they plan to do with Jaguar. They're going to start drip-feeding stuff. They have to, uh, because they're launching cars in 2025, so they can't keep their mouths shut for all of 2024. So we are, you know, we have waited for so long. You know, if you think that, well, just how old their cars are. Okay, I mean, the I-Pace is only, I don't know, what, five years old, but everything else... Um, you know, the F-Type, the XF, the XE, you know, they are such ancient product products and we know that jaguar is going to be reborn as an all-electric super luxury brand and that the cars will be driving them in 2025 but i think we're going to find out the plan <coughs> or at least a lot of the plan during the course of 2024 and i'm just fascinated i'm absolutely fascinated by this because on the one hand i mean I, I, nobody wants jaguar to succeed more than i do um, and they've clearly got some very, very talented designers. Um, and, you know, their track record with EVs is not great. Their only entrant so far has been the I-Pace, but it was the best EV in the world when it was launched. We know they've done two more since then, the J-Pace and the new XJ, both of which got canned um, for reasons which I, I well... I don't even want to think about. But anyway, they don't exist anymore. They're never going to go into production. So it's not as if they're lacking experience. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, I think to myself, well, 
This brand has been almost moribund for so long and they're really, as I understand it, they're going to come to market and hope that people will pay, you know, six-figure sums for these cars. And I just don't know whether Jaguar, as a brand, well, I mean, it certainly never had the clout to sit comfortably in that part of the marketplace before. I'm not sure what has happened since then that people are suddenly going to be happy to do that and think, okay, I will have this Jaguar over that Aston or that Bentley or or whatever. Um, because, you know, as we know, rightly or wrongly, wrongly in my view, but nevertheless, you know, people attach an awful lot of importance to the badge on the front of their cars. You know, there is prestige, there is status, there is all this sort of stuff, for want of a better word, which was, which really does, sadly, matter. And I just, I fear a little bit, oh no, quite a lot, that Jaguar might struggle at that level. But then maybe they will produce cars that do what Jaguars used to do, which were so beautiful, which were so technologically on point, that they just blow everything out of the water. You know, you think of the E-Type, you think of the Mark II, you think of the XJ, all the stuff they did in, you know, in that extraordinary decade from the late 1950s to the late 1960s, um, when Jaguars basically ruled the world um, because their cars were just better and more beautiful than anybody else's. That's what I'm hoping for, because believe me, it's going to take something like that. Because unless they produce something that is absolutely jaw-dropping and we all go just stop what you're doing and look at this if it's just you know if it's it's not going to be it's not going to be good enough for it to be as good as you know an Aston or a Bentley it's going to have to be better than that because otherwise people won't buy them so anyway fascinating fascinating I, I, I so wish them all the very best with it I you know I would love 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 Jaguar to come back yeah, I, I, I totally agree, actually. It's going to be very interesting. And you're right. It, I, for me, job one is make them look stunning, spectacular. If they just look a little bit derivative or a, comparable to a Bentley or a high-end Audi or something, or if you sort of look at it once and go, huh, that's nice, I think, they, I think they're doomed. I think they are doomed. But if they can make them look really gorgeous, show-stopping, then there's a real chance there. Um, there is a real chance. I actually have faith in the the brand Jaguar as a brand. Um, I think it still has clouds. I think it still has draw. Um, but the product needs to be good enough, um, and it needs to look good enough. And let's hope. Let's hope we see a bit of it next year, and let's hope they they pull it out the bag. Um, so I, I want to talk about the new Mercedes AMG GT. Um, I'm looking forward to driving this, but in a sort of apprehensive way, you know, I'm curious to see exactly what this car is like, because it's very different to the previous AMG GT. Um, actually it's an SL, a new SL with a fixed roof. So it is a two plus two. It does have, um, four wheel drive. So it's a very different sort of car to the previous AMG GT. What it doesn't have is the last one's mechanical layout, right? And I'm not sure AMG ever got enough credit for this, but they set out to build a truly focused driver's car with the AMG GT. You look at where the gearbox is on a transaxle at the back end. Look at where the engine sits way behind the front axle line. Um, that's actually, it looks like, it's called a GT. It looks like a Grand Tourer, but that's a, a front mid-engine supercar. It's got the same mechanical layout, more or less, as a, a Ferrari 812. Engine way back gearbox out the back um, where it's balanced. So that last one was a pretty hardcore, pretty uncompromising performance car, sports car. Now, there are certain variants of it that I don't particularly like. Um, others are fantastic. But you can't deny that they really tried to build a proper driver's car with that one. With this new one, it seems like they've accepted that that isn't what works for a Mercedes, for an AMG. And instead, what they've tried to do is build something that has the versatility of a 911. Um, 
So have they been able to do that and maintain what made the previous one exciting? I doubt it, but until we've actually driven it, it's impossible to, to, to say for sure. It's a compromise, isn't it? I, I completely agree with you. And you must, we mustn't forget where the AMG GT came from, which was the SLS, um, <clears throat> which was conceived as a supercar. So really what they have done is gone from, you know, and you're absolutely right about making comparisons to the Ferraris and indeed Aston Martin sports cars. Um, yeah, and so we've gone from a supercar design to a sort of <clears throat> roadster GT boulevardy type thing. And, well, I mean, you know, the guys at AMG, they're very, clever, you know, they're very clever people. They can do all sorts of things. I can remember when I drove, first drove the AMG four-door, not the hybrid one, just the GT63, at the Circuit of the Americas, and thinking, wow, this car is something. So they certainly can do it if, um, if the mood takes them. But even so, I think that they are... I think you're right, you're taking a car that was absolutely focused on the driver and now turning it into something completely different. But we will see whether that works or not. So are you, one of the cars I am intrigued about um, is the Range Rover Electric. I wonder if that's one of the ones that you're looking forward to driving in 2024. I, I am, uh, of course I am. Um, largely because I think it'll also be quite indicative um, of um, what's gonna be <clears throat> powering Jaguars in the future. Um, I mean, clearly, there's going to be a lot of commonality, particularly in the in the motors and uh, <clears throat> the batteries and, and and the whole drive system. Um, also, you know, and something like a Range Rover, it doesn't really matter if it's heavy or it matters less because people are expecting it. Um, they're, they're not the sort of cars you're going to drive around tracks. Um, I want it to have lots of range. It should be fantastic for driving off road because of the ability to just portion out torque in microscopic quantities. Um, and um, yeah, then again, would I have one or would I have something which will actually do hundreds of miles and I can refuel in five minutes flat? I just still have a normal one. As for the other cars I'm looking forward to driving this year, <clears throat> I mean, there are so many of them. Uh, I mean, Aston Martin are going to have an enormous year. Um, Hopefully, I will get to drive a Valor at some stage. Um, there's the heavily facelifted Vantage coming through, which I'm really excited about. There's the DBS replacement, which I've said before, I am convinced is going to be called Vanquish. Um, and at the end of the year, we've already seen the testing photographs of it. There's the Valhalla, 998 horsepower, 999 units, um, which will be fascinating. BMW have got a Touring, only the third Touring M5 that's, um, that they've done. Um, so that's going to be an occasion, isn't it? Um, Ferrari are going to, I believe, replace the 812 Superfast with a new V12 front engine flagship, which I think will have a hybrid attached to it. And we should see, um, 10 years on, another of their hypercars, a sort of LaFerrari, you know, in a, a car in the line that, you know, started with a 288 GTO, went through the F40 and the F50 and the Enzo and the LaFerrari. Well, we should see the next... Uh, in that line, I think it will probably not be a V12. I think it'll be a hybrid V6. I suspect it'll be an aerodynamics monster because that's not really an area that they have explored with those cars. So very interesting to see what that's going to be like. Uh, there's the Lotus Emea. This is the third of the new Lotuses after the Emera um, and the Elettra. So this is going to be a sort of Porsche Taycan rival. Um, talking of hypercars, we think McLaren are going to come out with another one of their Ultimate Series cars. Um, this is the car, I guess, which people will say is the replacement for the P1. So I think it'll be a car which um, is kind of equally at home or road or a track. And knowing McLaren, that will be an aero monster. To MG, the Cyberster. Is it Cyberster? Yes, I think that's how you pronounce it. So MG are going to come to market with a two-seat electric roadster um, with, I think, up to 536 horsepower and selling it for like 55, 65,000 pounds. I mean, it looks amazing. Um, we will have to see how well that goes down in the, uh, in the marketplace. Um, yeah, fascinating. I mean, fascinating times for MG generally. <clears throat> and finally, there is um, the sort of second generation of the eighth generation of the Volkswagen Golf, if that's not too complicated a way of putting it. So... Yeah, Golf 8.5, they're calling it. Um, and I'm just really, really interested to see whether they have realised the mistake they made with 
the current Golf GTI and have turned it back into the kind of car that it should have been. Um, yeah, so that's uh, that's a lot to be going on with, isn't it? It's a lot of really interesting cars. And uh, yeah, can't wait to drive um, pretty much all of them. God, there really is actually a hell of a lot to look forward to next year. Lots of interesting cars coming, but many of them... Um, yeah, they are intriguing, or I'm curious about them, as I've said a couple of times. It's, it's not necessarily that they are the most exciting cars going, or they are raw performance cars or anything like that. Some of them are just intriguing. I'm just, I want to know um, how good they actually are, like the Range Rover Electric, like the Renault 5 um, EV. I think it's going to be an interesting year. So we'll leave it there. Um, but thank you to everybody for for being with us um, throughout 2023. It's been a real pleasure to do this podcast for you. Your support has meant an enormous amount to us. Um, so thank you again for for your loyalty, for getting stuck in, um, and just for listening to the podcast. We appreciate it more than I can say. Um, and I suppose all we can do to sort of repay that loyalty is keep doing it and keep trying to make it better. And one of the things we want to do next year is bring in more guests. Um, so stay tuned. We've got um, an awful lot to look forward to in 2024 and uh, we hope you're gonna stick with us. So thank you again um, and have a great new year. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.